0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is
1: advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the final chapter of With Friends Like These. So far, we've seen friends turn upon friends for motivation like jealousy, greed, and revenge. This case, I think, is fascinating because it's not what you would expect at all. The perpetrator was someone who no one would suspect, and in fact, it took years to even solve the mystery. As well, many were hard-pressed to come up with a motivation for the crime. I had to dive into the background of the murderer, including what friends and family had to say, in order to come up with the reason this crime took place. We'll consider some theories along the way, but in the end, you will have to decide what you think is the most likely reason for what took place in Clear Lake City, Texas, in the summer of 2003. This is Chapter 4, Christine Paolilla. It was July 19, 2006, in the San Antonio, Texas, Police Department. 20-year-old Christine Paolilla was in an interview room with Detective Brian Harris from the Houston Police Department. Harris had been trying to solve a case for three years, and it had brought him 200 miles west from Houston to San Antonio. After countless false leads and mountains of paperwork, he was finally sitting down with someone who might hold the key to the answers in his unsolved case. Christine looked tiny, sitting in a hard metal chair. Her legs crisscrossed and tucked under her in a childlike way. She wasn't much bigger than a child. She was very thin, Almost emaciated looking with pale pasty skin and no makeup, her hair was up in a small bun. She was shivering a little and had wrapped herself in a bright yellow blanket that only served to make her skin tone look even more bloodless. She rocked her body back and forth in an anxious gesture. Christine Paolilla had lived a challenging life from her earliest days. Everything that had happened in her short two decades on earth seemed to have led to this place a cold, bleak police interview room, being questioned about a quadruple murder, a murder in which two of the victims were her two very best and perhaps only true friends. Christine was born on Long Island, New York, on March thirty first, 1986. Her mother, Lori, was a stay-at-home mom, and her father, Charles Paolilla, was a construction worker. When Christine was only two years old, Her father was killed in a construction accident. Christine's mother, unable to cope, began to spiral into drug abuse. Later, Christine would admit that her father was also a heroin addict, so perhaps her mother had issues with drugs before his death that got out of control. The result was that Christine and her brother were eventually sent to live with their grandparents. When she was very young, Christine was diagnosed with alopecia. Alopecia is a rare autoimmune disorder that causes a person to lose their hair, sometimes even including eyebrows and eyelashes. Only 2% of people in the United States are diagnosed with this disease, and the causes are somewhat unknown, although there is a genetic component to the condition. Christine lost almost all of the hair on her head, as well as her eyebrows and eyelashes. She was bullied in school due to her unusual appearance. She would wear wigs to cover her baldness, but they only served to make her stand out more. They were often cheaply made, looked obviously fake, and since they were made for adults, were too big. She wore large glasses and had trouble in school. She was ostracized by her classmates, and she didn't have many friends. She withdrew into herself and was very quiet and self-conscious. Sometimes after Christine was sent to live with her grandparents, her mother entered rehab. She would eventually get clean and remarry a man named Thomas Dick. After Christine's grandparents died, her mother took her back to live with her and her new husband. They eventually moved to Friendswood, Texas, a suburb of Houston. She continued to be bullied in school, with some kids not only making fun of her appearance, but harassing her by pulling off her wig in front of others to embarrass her. Christine continued to do poorly in school, and was tested and diagnosed with ADD. She also suffered from depression, which sometimes led her to act out angrily and aggressively against herself and her mother and stepfather. While in junior high school, Christine met Chris Snyder. Sometimes, kids tend to be drawn to those that they feel they can relate to, even negatively. Chris Snyder had behavior issues of his own. He grew up in a normal middle-class home with a loving family, but he had a dark and depressed side and used drugs to cope with his moods. His family believes that his personality changed for the worse after he was hit by a truck when he was 12 years old. He was playing in the street in front of his home and was struck by the vehicle and thrown several feet and knocked unconscious. His sister says, it seems that he changed a lot after that accident. He was almost two years older than Christine, but they connected and began spending a lot of time together. Her parents didn't like him and could see the bad influence he would become for Christine. His own family had to call the police on him when he became angry and violent. Christine's parents were afraid for her, but she stubbornly refused to stop hanging out with him. They had trouble controlling her as well. So they were relieved when the pair lost touch after junior high ended. Christine began her freshman year at Clear Lake High School and was still awkward, shy, and frankly, homely. She was picked on and laughed at by her classmates until one girl took notice and put an end to it. Rachel Kolorudis was a year ahead of Christine, and she and her best friend, Tiffany Raoul felt bad for Christine and decided to take her under their wing. Rachel and Tiffany met in their freshman year at Clear Lake High and had been best friends ever since. Both girls were very pretty and popular. Tiffany had dark curly hair and brown eyes and cocoa skin and was petite. Rachel was more fair with wavy auburn hair. She had a big beautiful smile and could have easily passed for a model. Tiffany and Rachel were very close, and can be seen hugging in many pictures of the two together. They became even closer after Tiffany's mother died while she was still in high school. They were the pretty popular girls, but were friendly to everyone and well-liked by their classmates. They never used their popularity to belittle others, but were just nice girls who cared about others. So when they saw Christine being bullied, they didn't like it. They realized that she couldn't help her medical condition, and it wasn't fair that others targeted her because of it. But they thought life might be easier for her if she set about to improve her appearance. So first they befriended Christine, and then they began to help her transform. It was a real-life My Fair Lady, or, for you youngins, mean girls without the mean girls. Tiffany and Rachel wanted to help Christine fit in, so they gave her a glamour makeover. They helped her find wigs that fit and made her look more her age. They helped her with her makeup, teaching her how to draw in her non-existent eyebrows so they looked natural. She got rid of her glasses and began wearing contact lenses. They taught her to apply her makeup so it brought out her natural beauty and didn't look so clownish. When they were done, just like in the movies, she looked like a brand new girl. And to her surprise, she was pretty, almost beautiful. Tiffany, Rachel, and Christine became good friends. They hung out together and had fun sleeping over at each other's houses, talking about boys, and being typical teenagers. It was the first time in her life that Christine had girlfriends who looked out for her, stuck up for her, and just cared for her as a friend. When Christine told her mother about the two girls who had befriended her, she said they were the sweetest girls she ever knew. Life changed for Christine after meeting Tiffany and Rachel. She was even voted Miss Irresistible in her high school yearbook a big difference from being the either invisible or bullied weird girl from previous days. Christine became especially close to Rachel. In her wallet, Rachel carried a high school picture of Christine that she had given to her. Inscribed on the back, Christine wrote how she would never forget their special friendship and wrote, I love you, before signing her name. But a few months before graduation in 2003, Rachel and Tiffany began to lose touch with Christine. It was their senior year and they were preparing for graduation and looking forward to their freedom and future plans. Rachel had been involved in her high school's ROTC program and was debating whether to join the military. Tiffany was a talented actress and was interested in pursuing a degree in social work. Christine was rumored to be spending time with a new boyfriend. Also, they knew that Christine, who turned 17 in March of 2013, was coming into an inheritance on her 18th birthday she was to receive a large sum that had been held in trust from her father's accidental death 16 years earlier. The amount, along with the interest it had accrued, would amount to perhaps a half a million dollars. The summer after graduation saw Tiffany and Rachel out on their own. Rachel was set to attend college in the fall, but wanted one wild and crazy summer before diving back into books and studying and adult life. Rachel's older sister was attending the University of North Texas at Denton, and Rachel was planning to join her there. She was planning to join the ROTC program, and her goal was to eventually enter the Air Force. Rachel's father and mother, George and Ann, thought the structure of a military life would serve Rachel well. She had always been a good girl, but she had begun to sow her wild oats during her senior year, and like most parents, they wanted to make sure she didn't get off track. They wanted to rein her in quickly, so she would stay focused on her goals and curtail her social life and partying. However, Rachel had decided to move out of her parents' home to live nearby with her best friend Tiffany. Tiffany had been adopted as a very young child by Sally and Chester Roll. Sally had died a few years prior of cancer. Her death was devastating to both Tiffany and her father. Chester Roll had married soon after and moved about 45 minutes away with his new wife. Tiffany now lived alone in the house he left behind on Millbridge Drive in Clear Lake City. The two 18-year-olds and recent high school graduates were living together in a rent-free home. As you can imagine, when other teens heard this, Tiffany's house became somewhat of a hangout and a party spot. Both girls were honest and hardworking and even church-going. Rachel was involved in her church and was a devout Christian. She even taught vacation Bible school. Tiffany always held a job and had graduated with good grades. In what might seem like a contradiction, They had both that summer began working at Club Exotica, a topless strip club. Strip clubs, of course, are often known for drugs and prostitution and some shady dealings. Of course, Rachel's parents were unhappy about her choosing to work in such a place. But both girls were, by all accounts, only waiting tables and bartending. Two attractive girls serving drinks in a strip club could earn big cash tips, and that's why they took the job. Of course, being both young and beautiful... They were offered jobs as dancers, but they both declined. Tiffany had been dating a boy she'd attended high school with, Marcus Bricella. Marcus was living with Tiffany. Marcus's best friend was his cousin Adelbert, called Dee by his family and friends. Marcus and Dee often hung out together. Dee still lived in the neighborhood Marcus grew up in, located in the northeast end of Houston. Marcus and his family had since moved 45 minutes away to the Houston suburb of Clear Lake City. Dee would often make the trip out to the suburbs to hang out with Marcus and Tiffany and sometimes stay over. Marcus was dealing drugs, but not in a big way. He was known to score small amounts of cocaine and ecstasy to sell to friends, as well as some of the strippers who worked at Club Exotica. Neither Marcus nor Adelbert had any criminal violations on their record. The summer of 2003 was consisting of the girls going to work at the club, waiting tables and bartending, coming home with cash, and hanging out and partying with friends. They were enjoying the easy living, fun with their friends, and freedom from real responsibility. Adulthood and all that came with it would come soon enough. For now, they just wanted to have some fun. And the party would continue until the afternoon of July 18, 2003, just two months after Rachel and Tiffany walked across the stage with their high school diplomas. The friend Rachel and Tiffany had drifted apart from, Christine Paolilla, was a year behind them in school. That summer, between her junior and senior years, she was working at Walgreens Drugstore. And she was seeing Chris Snyder again. They had lost touch since junior high, but ran into each other at a party in the winter of 2003. Chris must have been taken aback by his old girlfriend's new look. Beginning right after school ended in June, they began seeing each other. Chris was all grown up, and good-looking. He kept his dark blonde hair cut close to his scalp, and his light blue eyes, while a pretty color, seemed a bit flat and emotionless, as described by those who knew him. He rarely smiled, and his brooding looks made him look dark and dangerous. Perhaps that's what drew Christine to him again. As she would later say, I'm the type of person who has always dated stupid guys just because I think I can help them get them back on their feet. Christine would later try and characterize the relationship as one where Chris was angry, violent, and out of control, while she was the long-suffering girlfriend who was just trying to help him. She would also claim to be afraid of him and would do what he said or give in to his demands in order to keep the peace. But others, including both her and Chris's families, would point out that their out-of-control behavior was mutual. As far back as March of 2003, Tom Dick, Christine's stepfather, had called the police on her for attacking him with her fists. Christine had flown into a rage when her parents refused to allow her to leave home to be with Chris. It seems that Christine had quickly fell into one of those teenage relationships where her boyfriend was all that mattered to her. She would cut school, defy her parents, and do just about anything to be with Chris. This is most likely one of the reasons her good friends, Tiffany and Rachel, didn't see much of her during their last year of high school together. Lori Payolilla said that during this time, she had called the police on her daughter a number of times. Her parents were having problems with her over her desire to be with her boyfriend, curfew, and her general behavior towards them. In late April of 2003, she had left home with a suitcase to live with Chris. She was back a week later apologetic. However, it wasn't long before she was sneaking out of the house again and breaking curfew to be with Chris. Of course, Christine's parents blamed Chris for leading their daughter astray. They felt that her acting out was due to his influence alone. He was just a troublemaker and was using his hold over her for his own selfish needs. However, others would portray the relationship quite the opposite. Pretty much every fight and or argument between Chris and Christine, a friend said, was over her crushing jealousy. She accused him of looking at other girls and would sometimes fly into a rage when she became jealous. Chris's sister Brandy had begun to call Christine the psycho during the time her brother was dating her. The rest of his family agreed. Christine called their house constantly. Chris, they would admit, had his problems. He did have an anger problem and also used drugs, but he could be a really sweet guy. They said he went out of his way to avoid fights with Christine that they saw themselves. Sometimes he tried to use the strategy of just not talking to her to end the constant fighting and arguing she always seemed to want to engage in with him. But it didn't work. She would come to the Snyder house and pound on the door, rattling doorknobs and checking windows to try to get inside to speak to Chris. She'd even threatened his family when they wouldn't let her in. Finally, if she couldn't get in, she would spend the night sleeping on their front lawn. According to his family... Chris would often say that there were only two things in the world he was afraid of, the cops and Christine. It was not a secret that Chris and Christine were doing drugs together. Christine would say that she only smoked pot when she met Chris, but he introduced her to harder drugs. Chris would take whatever drugs he could get, some said. It's not hard to imagine that Christine began to experiment with drugs for her own reasons, either because she was biologically predisposed to habitual drug use, having a history of it in her family, or she was self-medicating, or she was trying to fit in with her boyfriend. Whatever the reason, her drug use began to spiral out of control. She spent the beginning of that summer hanging out with Chris as much as possible and getting high. She did, however, manage to hold on to her job and would have Chris drop her off at work in her car to make sure that he would have to come back and pick her up after work and she could be with him again as soon as her shift ended. On July 18, 2003, Chris was hanging out at Christine's house in Friendswood. Christine's parents weren't home. She says that Chris lit up a joint in her house, and she got mad and told him to put it out. She didn't want him smoking in the house. Her parents would come home and smell it, and she'd be in trouble. Chris ignored her, and she yelled at him. At that point, she says, he got mad and demanded she drive him home. She tried to smooth things over, but he insisted that he wanted to leave. They got into her car and she drove him home. Once there, Chris continued to be hostile and angry towards her, Christine said. After pacing around the house for a while, he told her to take him to Seabrook so he could buy some drugs. Not wanting to fight with him, she agreed to take him. On the way there, he told her that he no longer wanted to go to Seabrook, but to Clear Lake City. Take me to your homegirl's house, he instructed, meaning Tiffany, and I'll see if Marcus is there. Christine had taken her boyfriend to Tiffany Rowell's house a couple of weeks earlier. A party had been held there to celebrate Tiffany's birthday. Chris had met Marcus and found out that he sometimes had drugs for sale. Unknown to Christine, Chris had connected with Marcus a couple of times since then. When she found out, she was furious. She didn't want her boyfriend going over there without her, talking to Marcus or Tiffany, or especially Rachel. She was jealous. Now he wanted to go back to Tiffany's and she was not happy about it. But as you'll see, Christine had more than a couple of versions of the events that unfolded on Friday, July 18th. I'll first tell you what is known for certain, that by the end of the day, four young people would be murdered. Then I'll try and piece together for you what most likely is the truth. Just after 6 p.m. on Friday, July 18th, one of Tiffany's friends who'd been trying to reach her all afternoon, pulled up to her house on Millbridge Drive. She had called earlier in the day, at about 3 p.m. Tiffany's boyfriend had answered Tiffany's cell phone. She's in the bathroom, he told her. She said she would call back. About 30 minutes later, she tried her again, but there was no answer. Nor was there any answer the rest of the afternoon. Now she decided to just drive over and see if she could contact her in person. She had a weird feeling that something was wrong. She took her boyfriend, her nephew, and her boyfriend's cousin along for the ride. As she pulled up to Tiffany's house, she saw that both Marcus and Tiffany's cars were in the driveway. She walked up to the front door and rang the bell. There was no answer from inside. She continued to knock and ring the bell, but there was no sound from in the house at all. She tried looking in the window, but couldn't see anything. She went back to the front door and banged on it. It was unlocked and must not have been closed all the way because it began to swing open. She walked in calling, Hello? But still, there was no movement from inside. It was eerily quiet. There was a short hallway that led to a sunken living room. She walked a few feet and stood frozen at the entrance to the living room. At first, what she was seeing didn't register. Then she saw the blood. There was so much blood. She turned and ran out of the house just as her boyfriend began exiting her car to follow her inside. "'Call the cops!' she screamed. She collapsed on the front lawn and began crying hysterically, pounding her fist into the ground. Her boyfriend walked inside to see what was going on. Within seconds, he came flying out of the house, yelling, "'Call 911!' Not long later, the Rawl house was besieged by cops, EMTs, and fire trucks. Crime scene tape had quickly been strung up to keep neighbors and others from getting too close. The news that something terrible had happened in Clear Lake City had spread quickly from the neighbors to the community and to the media. Houston Police Department's Homicide Division released a statement early on to try and calm the gossip and speculation. I think it happened very quickly, the police department's spokesperson said but it was very violent. It looks like some type of confrontation happened at the front door and then moved into the living room. There was no sign of forced entry, but the bodies of four people, two males and two females, were found. They had been shot multiple times, and two of the victims had sustained blunt trauma to the head. Found dead were 18-year-old Tiffany Raul, 18-year-old Rachel Colorado, 19-year-old Marcus Ray Priscilla, and 21-year-old Adelbert D. Nicholas Sanchez. Both Adelbert and Tiffany were found sitting on opposite sides of the sofa from one another. Adelbert had been killed by multiple gunshot wounds. He'd been hit in the forehead, neck, arm, torso, and shoulder. He was still sitting on the couch, as if napping. One of his feet still rested on the footrest. Tiffany was also seated on the couch, with one foot resting on the chair in front of her. It looked as though she and Adelbert had been sitting on the couch watching television, which was still on, and drinking sodas when they had been shot. The implication of this is that whoever came into the house was not a stranger, or in any case, no one felt threatened enough by their presence to even get out of their seats. Detectives would believe, right away, that their attackers were someone they knew, perhaps even someone who was a friend. Tiffany had also been shot multiple times, in the forehead Chin, cheek, left shoulder, abdomen, right leg, knee, and shin, and in her crotch. This was definitely a case of overkill with Tiffany. Since she was shot almost point-blank in the forehead and had never moved, she was most likely dead or dying before the other shots were fired into her body. Marcus was either standing as the shooting began or had gotten up before he was shot. He was lying on the carpet on his side, almost directly behind his cousin, Adelbert. He had been shot in the head, stomach, right forearm, and right shoulder. There was also a graze type wound running across his chest, as if a bullet had just missed him as he turned to get away. He had also been beaten. He had been hit with a blunt instrument, most likely the butt of the gun, on his temple and multiple times on the back of his head. One more gunshot wound was found in the back of his head. This shot, the coroner had determined, had been fired while his attacker held the barrel of the weapon, To his head, most certainly to make sure that he was dead. The worst violence had been reserved for Rachel. She was found face down on the floor at the foot of the television. She had been shot six times once in her right thigh, her left shin, once in her abdomen, and once in her right foot. She had also been shot once in her left buttock, and from this, detectives surmised that she had been running away from the shooter when this shot was fired. She had also been shot once directly in her vagina. This seemed to be a very personal attack, most likely committed by someone who had a lot of anger towards Rachel. Even though Rachel had been shot multiple times, it was determined that she was still alive and trying to fight off her assailant. She had defensive wounds on her hands, which were most likely made from trying to fend off her attacker as she was beat over the head. She had been viciously beaten with many blows to the head. It was later determined that she had not died from her gunshot wounds, but from blunt force trauma. Most chillingly, Rachel's cell phone was found just out of her grasp, lying on the floor in front of her. Blood was found on the numbers 9 and 1. It looked like she was trying to call 911 and had just been unable to dial the last number before she was beaten to death. The crime scene was repeatedly described as carnage. As I said before, there was no forced entry. Two different types of rounds were fired, one from a 9mm and one from a 38 caliber weapon, so it was believed that there had to be at least two attackers. It made sense because it would have been more difficult for one person to take out four people that quickly. Shell casings were found beginning immediately in the foyer that led into the living room. The shooters had begun shooting soon upon entering the home. Adelbert and Tiffany had been shot first before anyone had time to react. Marcus looked to be in the process of turning away to flee. Rachel had gotten the furthest in trying to save herself and had suffered a brutal death because of it. There were still valuable items in the house, as well as jewelry and cash on the victims. If this was a robbery, it was not well planned. Detectives soon learned that Tiffany's house was a teen and young adult hotspot and that her boyfriend Marcus was known to deal drugs. They began working the case as a drug deal gone wrong, or an attempted robbery by of Marcus's former clients. They also looked into the theory that maybe someone from the strip club had followed one of the girls' home. Maybe it was someone who was interested in one of them and was spurned. It was also discovered that Tiffany and Rachel had made friends with a few of the dancers at the club, and they had been to the house to party or just hang out. It could be someone connected to a person who didn't live at the house at all. To the trained eye, this case looked at first glance— like a drug killing, and they started with this theory. Another thing that led them to believe this might be the case was that while there were many rounds fired in the house, they were not random. They were all good shots. There were 21 shots fired in total. 17 hit their target. This didn't look like an amateur. Detectives canvassed the neighborhood, but even though the murders had taken place in the middle of the afternoon, no one had heard anything. Using the timeline Tiffany's friend had given them, helped them determine that the shootings had occurred between 3 and 4 p.m. But this was Houston, Texas, in July. It was extremely hot and humid, and anyone who was home that day had their windows closed and their air conditioning humming, which would block out the noise. The case was first assigned to Detective Tom Ladd and his partner Phil Yoakum. Incidentally, Ladd was a veteran Houston police detective who had been instrumental in identifying and capturing the serial killer Angel Matarino Resendez, a.k.a. the railroad killer. The very first day of the investigation, they got a good lead. Neighbors Craig and Michelle Lackner, who lived next door, reported seeing two people near the Rawl house that afternoon. Michelle had just gotten out of the shower and heard her dog barking outside. He never barked like that, she said, and she asked her husband to go and bring him inside. She looked at the clock. It read 3.15 p.m. When Craig returned inside, he went to the bedroom and happened to glance outside where he saw two people dressed in black. He called to Michelle, who was only wrapped in a towel, and jokingly said, Hey honey, you're going to give these two kids a show. Michelle looked out and saw two young teens about 30 feet away from their back window, dressed in black. Michelle noted that it was odd, since it was so hot outside. She continued to watch them, getting a good look at both of their faces. She saw the pair, a male and a female, Stop at Tiffany's truck and look in the back window of the vehicle. The female was white with straight sandy blonde hair, fair skin, and a clear complexion. She was maybe 18 to 25 years old, about 5 foot 7 inches tall, and between 115 and 120 pounds. She was wearing a black top, white shorts, black platform sandals, and had a black bandana tied at the top of her head. She also had a black purse slung over her right shoulder. The way she was carrying it, Michelle remembered, made it seem as if it was heavy. The boy was also white with a fair complexion and sandy blonde hair. He was a bit shorter than the female. He looked to be between 18 and 20 years old, and he was thin. She had never seen either of them before in the neighborhood. Detectives got the Lackners in immediately to have a sketch artist create a composite of the two people they'd seen the day of the murders. However, the police did not release the sketches to the public or do anything further with them. Detectives weren't sure how important this lead was. They thought that perhaps the witnesses were describing individuals they'd seen on a previous day. Investigators know how unreliable witnesses' memories can be. We're often sure of something happening at a certain time or day, but when we look back at a calendar, it actually happened at a completely different time. However, I would think that this day would stick out very clearly in the minds of the couple. Four of their neighbors have been murdered, and you tend to remember things that happen on a day when you get that kind of news. I also think that the detectives might have been biased because they believed that this was a drug-related killing. They wouldn't be expecting their suspects to look like the young, clean-cut kids that had been described by the Lackners, so they dismissed it. George Colorutus had been devastated by the death of his daughter, Rachel, and he wanted answers. He kept in close contact with Detective Ladd, reaching out to him with information he'd gathered from his daughter's friends or just gossip that seemed to float in the wind after the murders. He called him almost daily. Detective Ladd knew George wouldn't give up until Rachel's murderer or murderers were found. Detectives continued to follow the drug deal theory and interviewed numerous people and followed up on countless leads but months passed with no good leads. He even showed George and Ann the sketches of the two people the Lackners had seen, but they did not recognize either individual. George did ask why he had not gone public with the sketches. By October, Ladd had been assigned to a new homicide case, an officer-involved shooting, which took precedent in the police department. The case of the Clear Lake Massacre, as it had been dubbed in the press, was now handed over to Detective Brian Harris. Because of this, the case got a fresh pair of eyes, and George Kolorudis was more hopeful now that the case would begin to move forward. As he read through the details of the case, two names stood out to Detective Harris, Michelle and Craig Lackner, the couple who lived next door to Tiffany Rawl, and had seen two strangers near the home that day. He also found another interview that he felt was important, another neighbor, Nancy Vernau. She lived two doors away from the Rawl house, she was in her living room waiting for a friend to arrive that day. She received a call at exactly 2.55 p.m. from her friend letting her know that she was on her way. Nancy knew that she had about 45 minutes before her friend arrived, so she lay down on her couch to rest. A few minutes later, she heard some pop sounds, like a metallic pinging sound, she said. There were two pops with a slight pause in between, and then five very fast pops altogether." together. She looked at the VCR on top of her television at that moment and saw the time displayed as 3.17 p.m. Those pops, of course, were the sounds of the kids being shot to death. She thought it was perhaps the sounds of her neighbor working with tools in his garage until later that day when the police arrived and she saw the police tape around the rolls and heard what had happened. She'd given her statement to investigators. Harris wanted to get the Lackners into the police station to look through a photo lineup. Meanwhile, unable to stand around doing nothing, George Kolorutis had started a website with information about the murders and set up an account for a reward to be given to anyone who could help police identify the killers. In November, George, along with the families of Marcus and Adelbert and Houston PD, held a press conference to announce that they needed help in solving the Clear Lake murders. They were asking anyone with information to call in to Crime Stoppers where they could relay their information anonymously if they wished. They would be given an identification number that, should the information lead to an arrest, they could use to collect the reward money that was being collected. The families had been pooling money from their own resources as well as taking donations and even staging a benefit concert. Not long after, the amount of the reward was up to $100,000. But even with all this, the case would go cold for a while longer. Christine and Chris were still together in the fall and into the winter of 2003. They were doing more drugs and now added petty theft to their shared activities. In late October, they were both arrested for shoplifting. Because she was a minor, Christine was only given a slap on the wrist and released to her parents. Chris's name was ran through the database after his shoplifting arrest, and it was discovered that he had a warrant out for his arrest for stealing a car in Kentucky, where he had gone to stay with family for a time. He was sent back to Kentucky to face these charges. Christine, of course, wanted to go with him. She could not be without him, and when her parents refused to allow her to leave, she began screaming and yelling and threatening them with violence if they didn't let her go. They called the cops. They told the dispatcher that their daughter had recently been released from jail on a shoplifting charge and was on two different medications for bipolar disorder. She had threatened them with a knife, and they needed help. EMTs were sent to their house along with police officers. They took her to a nearby hospital for psychiatric evaluation. While being assessed at the hospital, it was discovered that Christine had moved on to harder drugs, including cocaine. She was released a few days later when she was no longer determined to be a danger, but she continued to spiral out of control on a regular basis, and her parents continued to call the police to their house to deal with her. When she went to court on the shoplifting charge... She was given a deal. No jail time if she would enter drug rehab. She agreed and entered a rehab facility in San Antonio, Texas. George Kolorudis was still frustrated by the lack of leads in the case. He decided that he needed to get the word out about the sketches and the reward. He spoke to Clear Channel, who owned billboard space in and around Houston. They agreed to donate 15 billboards, that would feature the sketches of the male and female suspects who still had not been identified, as well as the crime stopper tip line number and the information about the $100,000 reward, David Gronwald, Marcus's stepfather, helped George create the billboard posters, and his employer donated money towards the artwork costs. Christmas was coming, and four families would be grieving the absence of their loved ones. The only gift they could even consider this year was a break in the case to bring the children's murderers to justice. The billboards went up, but the two people they were seeking had by now left the area. Almost a year and a half passed since the murders, and Christine Paolilla had completed her time in drug treatment and had been living at a halfway house in Kerrville, Texas, as part of her probation. She was attending 12-step meetings to help her continue to stay clean and sober, and it was at one such meeting where she met 25-year-old Justin Rott. Justin had been using heavy drugs by the time he was in junior high. He'd been a heroin addict by the age of 15. That had continued until he was 21. He ended up homeless, and a friend encouraged him to enter a drug treatment program. He spent 28 days in a detox center and then moved into a halfway house in Kerrville, to continue to work on his sobriety. He saw Christine and thought she was pretty. They began to talk after the meetings, and before long, they were seeing each other almost every day. Of course, it's not advised for two newly clean drug addicts to get together romantically. It creates a danger of both turning back to drugs. But of course it happens frequently, as addicts meet other addicts at drug treatment programs. It just happens. In fact, It's often the case that the addiction is just transferred from drugs to the relationship itself. Both Christine and Justin became obsessed with being together. Maybe this is just called love, but whatever the case, they quickly became serious. Christine thought Justin was just the perfect man for her. He was gentle, loving, and caring, something she'd been looking for all of her life. And he understood her problems because he was challenged with some of the same issues. He was affectionate with her, and she loved the way he treated her with respect. He truly cared about her and wanted to make her happy. By Thanksgiving, she was in love. She invited him to go home with her to see her parents over the Christmas holiday, and he happily accepted the invitation. Just before they left for the holiday trip, he proposed. After only a few weeks of meeting, Justin and Christine were engaged to be married. Her parents were happy to see their daughter looking so healthy and happy. Justin seemed to truly love her, and they were happy that they seemed to be making future plans, plans to stay sober and have a home and maybe even a family. Her stepfather even offered Justin a job. The mood was only marred briefly when the subject of the murders came up over dinner. It was still a much-talked-about event in the area. Christine had been away for some time and had not been subjected to updates. Now her mother brought up the terrible tragedy and how sad that Christine's good friends had been taken so tragically. Christine didn't want to discuss it and became quiet, the blood draining from her face, especially after her mother's comment that whoever did this to these kids should get the needle. Justin agreed. They changed the subject when they saw how badly Christine was reacting to hearing about her friend's murders. Of course it was understandable. She had loved Rachel and Tiffany. But Justin thought he saw something else on Christine's face. She froze like a deer in the headlights. He decided to talk to her about it at a later time. Before they left Friendswood, Justin was sold. He was eager to take the job Tom had offered, and for him and Christine to move back to the area. They would have family who loved and supported them, something Justin had not had himself. He had not been raised by his biological mother, and had just recently been reunited with her. The reunion did not go well. Turns out, she had her own problems with drug addiction. This was a chance at a normal life, and Justin, in love, wanted to plan his future with Christine as his bride. They agreed to move to the Houston area together. And they had one other big advantage. Christine had come into her inheritance, and her trust fund of over $400,000 had been dispersed to her. She had plenty of cash in the bank to do whatever they wanted to do. On March 22nd, 2005, Justin and Christine were married. They planned to move to Friendswood and purchased a condo. But since they left their halfway house in Kerrville, they were staying in a motel living off daily cash withdrawals from Christine's bank account. Two years after the murders in July of 2005, a call came into the Crime Stoppers tip line. As the two year anniversary hit, Another push for information was sent out to the media. The caller wished to remain anonymous. She said that a man named Christopher Snyder had told her while he was drunk that he and a girl named Christine killed four people in Clear Lake. He told her that Christine's best friend was raped by the two men that were killed, and that's why they were targeted. He'd shot the two men while Christine had killed the two females. Somehow, Christine Paolilla's name was never listed among the friends of Tiffany and Rachel, so that name didn't match anyone in their investigation. The tipster didn't know Christine's last name. As well, this story, about a supposed rape, did not match the motives they were working with, and there was no record of a rape accusation against Marcus or Adelbert. So, this tip was just placed among the stack of other tips that had come into the hotline. Just another rumor that led to a dead end, they believed. Christine did buy a condo located in Webster, Texas, just outside of Clear Lake City. In July 2005, when the case was back in the news for the two-year anniversary, Christine was home watching television when a news report came on. She called Justin from the other room. Look, she said, pointing to the TV. The pictures of Rachel, Tiffany, Marcus, and Adelbert were on the screen. Christine was pacing nervously in front of the television, repeating, "'Oh, my. Oh, my.'" Justin looked at his wife oddly, wondering what was going on with her. Next, the composite sketches flashed on the screen. "'Does that look like me?' she asked, her eyes wide and frozen to the television. "'Does that look like me?' Justin answered, "'Of course not.'" But in that moment, he knew. "'She's involved in this,' he told himself." I've married a murderer. But what happened next took their focus off the murders. In September, Hurricane Rita threatened Houston's Gulf Coast. Coming on the heels of the devastating hurricane and flooding that Katrina brought just weeks earlier, residents of the Houston area evacuated in large numbers. Christine and Justin were two of them, leaving their condo to travel inland to Arlington, Texas, where they rode out the storm for a few days. For whatever reason, this was the time that Justin and Christine finally succumbed to their inner demons. They had an unlimited amount of cash and were both itching to do drugs. While in Arlington, Justin returned to his heroin habit, and Christine joined him. I wonder if seeing the composite sketch on television freaked her out so bad that she wanted the escape. I also wonder if Justin, realizing that his wife was most likely involved somehow in a quadruple murder, felt the same way. Whatever pushed him over the edge, he told Christine their next journey was to San Antonio. Why? Because he had a drug dealer there. They told themselves they would only go to San Antonio for a little while, and then return back to their condo. Instead, they stayed in San Antonio, staying in hotels and motels around the area, withdrawing cash from Christine's account to purchase large quantities of drugs that they began to take daily and even hourly. They stayed high all the time. In the meantime, while she was high, Christine began to share bits and pieces of information with Justin about the Clear Lake murders. He did and he didn't want to hear this information. She was at first vague about her own involvement, once saying, "'Chris and me were at my friend's house. "'We were going to buy drugs.' and some things, like you know, happened, and some people ended up dead. Sometimes he thought he would call the police and report what she told him, but at other times he talked himself out of it. He loved her, and maybe she was making it all up, he told himself. But later on, as they fell deeper into their heroin and cocaine addiction, she laid out details about what had happened on July eighteenth, two 2003, and her part in it. She told Justin that she and Chris Snyder had gone to Tiffany's house and parked on the side of the road down the street and walked up to the house. This matched the Lackners' account of seeing the male and female, dressed in black, walking, not driving, up to the house. As they walked up to the door, she said Chris pushed a gun into her hand. They were his father's guns, and she didn't question him. She just took it. Chris told her they were there to rob them of any money or drugs in the house. One of the girls answered the door. They walked into the house. Tiffany and Marcus were sitting on the couch. Of course they knew Christine and had met Chris and they were not concerned. This was certainly why they didn't even bother to get up. What she said next had to be a lie. She said that she asked Tiffany to take her to her room. Tiffany would know this meant that Christine was asking for drugs. This is where they were kept. She said Tiffany walked her back to the room while in the meantime, Chris had showed the three remaining in the living room that he had a gun. But we know that Tiffany had never gotten out of her chair, so this whole part of the story is false. Christine said that she returned to the living room with Tiffany, who now realized they were being robbed. Chris started ordering them around, telling them not to move, and for Tiffany to get by the couch. He then ordered Christine to take out the other gun. Chris shot first, she said. He shot Marcus and then Dee. Then somehow her gun just went off in her hand. She didn't remember shooting it, she said. They then saw Rachel trying to get out of the room. She said she couldn't remember, but she thought she might have shot Tiffany and Rachel while Chris continued to fire at the boys. They fired until they ran out of ammo, and then they left the house. Once they got to the car, she became paranoid that someone might have been left alive and could identify them. She told Chris she had to go back. She went back inside and saw Rachel on the floor. She was still alive, and she was crawling and reaching for her cell phone that was on the floor beside her. Christine told him that she could hear Rachel gagging on her own blood. She saw Christine and looked at her and said, Why? Christine then took out the gun. It was out of bullets. She raised it over her head and hit Rachel over the head with the barrel over and over until she stopped moving. Rachel, her friend the one who had come to her rescue when she was being picked on and bullied, the one who had transformed her from an awkward outcast into Miss Irresistible, continued to cry and ask why while Christine beat her to death. She then returned to the car and told Chris to drop her off at her job at Walgreens. She clocked in at 4.23 p.m. In the locker room at work, she changed into her uniform. There was some blood spatter on her shirt. But the clothing was black and it didn't show. As she washed up in the restroom, she noticed some blood under her fingernails. She washed her hands and began her shift at the cosmetics counter. On July 8, 2006, 10 days before the third anniversary of the murders, another anonymous call came into the Crime Stoppers tip line. The caller this time was a male. Later, it would be rumored that the anonymous caller was Justin Rott. However, this proved to be false. I overheard Christine Paolilla talking about the murders in Clear Lake that happened in July 2003, the caller said. Christine was in the Starlight Rehab Center in Centerpoint, Texas, back in 2004, and I was in the same facility. He said that she claimed she had helped her boyfriend commit the murders. His name was Chris but he didn't know him or his last name. He also said that Christine was a friend of one of the girls who was killed. Bingo. This was the final piece of the puzzle they needed, and it had just fallen into their lap. But he had even more information. She spoke as if she was proud of her crime, he said. Have you ever killed anyone, she asked him. No, he answered. Well, I have, she said, almost smugly. She also told them that they'd killed the four people to steal a large amount of money in X or ecstasy pills. They had used a forty-five caliber and a 9 millimeter weapon. The guns had come from a safe in her boyfriend's father's house. They had put the guns back in the safe after the murders. She told him a different story than she had relayed to her husband. One of the males was shot while he was on the sofa and died instantly. They both began firing at the same time as they entered the house. She also told him the same account about walking back into the house and beating one of the victims to death with the butt of the gun. She had been trying to call 911 when she found her. This detail had not been revealed to anyone outside of the investigation. When Detective Harris ran the names of Christine Paolilla and Chris Snyder, records showed that they had been arrested together in 2003 for shoplifting, in the same part of town where the murders took place. Now the next thing they needed to do was to find Christine and Chris. They found Lori Paolilla, Christine's mother. She hadn't heard from Christine since September of 2005. Justin, however, sometimes would send them text messages to tell them that they were fine. She knew that Christine was withdrawing money from her account, money that she was living off of. She was able to check the bank records to find the location of the ATM machine she was currently visiting to get cash. She gave this information to the detectives. It didn't take them long with bank records to find out that Justin and Christine were staying at a La Quinta Inn in San Antonio. They had been there for almost eight months, paying for the room every two weeks using a credit card. They had moved into the room in December, and since then, Christine had not left the room once. They were shooting up over $500 a day worth of cocaine and heroin. Justin would leave the room to hit the ATM machine, score drugs, and go to the gas station market across the road to get cigarettes and junk food. On Wednesday, July 19th, Sergeant Detective Brian Harris, along with officers from both Houston and San Antonio Police Departments, entered room 111 of the La Quinta Inn Motel in San Antonio. They also had a warrant for Justin, who had an outstanding theft charge. They kicked the door open and cornered the extremely surprised couple. The room was filthy and stunk of rotten food, garbage, and dog poop. They had their small dog living with them that they apparently never let outside to go potty. There was dope and needles scattered everywhere. They found over 100 used needles littered throughout the room. There was also blood spray everywhere. The cast-off blood mist was so pervasive on almost every surface of the room that it looked like a scene in a slasher film. They could barely get Justin Rotten to the police station before he began spilling his guts about the murders. Within a few minutes, they heard the whole story his wife had shared with him about the murders in Clear Lake, including her role. They got all the pertinent details from him, details that only someone who was in the room the day of the murders would know. Harris then questioned Christine. He was surprised after seeing the amount of drugs this tiny girl was apparently shooting up that she was still alive. She didn't look great, She was pale and very skinny and seemed to be shivering all over as if cold. But she was very articulate, lucid, and rational in her answers to him. The interview was being recorded by video camera. She was emotional, crying sometimes, but she didn't implicate herself in any crimes. Finally, she began to speak, but only to invoke the name of Chris Snyder. She then began to tell Harris a sob story about how she was always alone and how everyone was against her. Chris had at first made her feel special, she said. Then he began to control and manipulate her. He was violent, and she was scared of him. In this way, she began to lay out her story to blame Chris and exonerate herself. It was his idea to steal drugs from Marcus and Tiffany, she explained. He asked her to drive him over to Tiffany's house. In the course of the interview, she told him that she was jealous and didn't want him to go to the house where the girls, meaning Tiffany and Rachel, lived. I thought maybe he had, you know, messed around with one of the girls or something. You know, he wanted to see them or something. Harris thought, so he asks his girlfriend, a good friend of both girls, to drive him over there? That didn't make much sense. In the first version she told Harris during this interview, she wouldn't even admit to going in the house. Chris had gone in alone and a few minutes later had run out and told her to drive away fast. I jacked them fools, he yelled and flashed the drugs at her, she said. She made a slip-up, however, stating that he came out of the house with the guns in his hands. She said, guns, not gun. How did she know there was more than one? And why would he have two guns in his hands? Again, it didn't make sense. She said she had never said anything to anyone about the murders because she was terrified of Chris. She just wanted to get away from him, she said. But the truth was... Christine had called Chris Snyder non-stop for weeks after the murder, and his family had the phone records to prove it. She didn't seem too scared, it seemed. She still would not admit to being inside the house at all, even after they told her what Justin had said she'd shared. How would she know Rachel was crawling on the floor reaching for her cell phone unless she'd been there? "'I did not go into that house,' she insisted. Harris concluded the interview and had Christine transported back to Houston." Now a manhunt was on to find Chris Snyder. In May 2006, Chris had met a woman online who lived in South Carolina. They began an internet romance. Chris had been bouncing between Kentucky and Texas, but when the hunt for him began in July of 2006, he had illegally fled the jurisdiction and moved to Greenville, South Carolina to live with his new girlfriend. They raided his mother's home in Louisville, Kentucky, but of course he was not there. However, during the search they found a gun in a dresser drawer and a second weapon in a safe. They would soon be positively identified as the murder weapons used in the Clear Lake murders. Hearing about the raid at his mother's house, Chris's aunt called him in South Carolina. She told him that the Houston police were looking for him on a murder charge. In a panicked voice, he asked her what she was talking about. When she explained, he told her, don't call here, don't call me back, and hung up he began to pace frantically like a trapped animal. While his girlfriend called his sister Brandy in Texas to get more information about what was going on, Chris took off out of the house. He had taken all of the prescription painkillers that were in the house and had left his cell phone and wallet behind. Once back in Houston, Christine was called in again to be interviewed by Detective Harris. She still refused to admit to any part in the murders. Harris pulled out detail after detail about her confession she made to Justin. How would she know what caliber weapons were used? How would she know about Rachel and the cell phone? She continued to deflect, and when backed into a corner, would say that she was ill. She was going through heroin withdrawal, and she was seen by a nurse while in jail, and then admitted to the hospital after booking to receive medication to help her with the withdrawal symptoms. She was not so sick that she was unable to dodge her way out of all the questions she was asked, She still did not admit to a role in the murders. She was also not too sick to eat. She requested and was provided a McDonald's Happy Meal. Finally, in her third interview, Christine finally confessed, kind of. She claimed that she had gone into the house with Chris only because she was forced to. Once inside, he had made her take the second gun and pointed at all four who were gathered in the living room. She then went on a long rambling description of how Chris forced her to shoot the weapon.
0: So, the gun was in
2: your hand, and what was he telling you? One, two, three. I, he
1: was, he was holding on
2: to it, too. Okay, like but, on top of your hand or something. Yes, like, yeah, like I, I, I couldn't even tell you how it was like. But that one, that that um, like I was scared and I was like cringing, and then I. Uh, I had made the the gun go off, not not purposely though, but like it, it went to the, like the back of the room because I was just like screaming, just like shaking.
1: So somehow like you pull the trigger. Yes. Okay.
2: And he's like, you know, one, two, three, and he's like, come on, you, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch, and he, and he started just screaming at me, and then you know he he kept like it felt like like I was like being like jerked like like you know like. It was violent when the when it goes off. Mm-hmm. How many times do you think it went off in your hand? A million times. It, it went off a bunch in your hand. It, it felt like a million times. Like it, the, even like the first time, it felt like a million you, times. So you you were pulling the triggers? No, now? no. Like it, it's like he has his hand, and my hand was like I I, I couldn't even tell you how like it was it was. Okay. But it it was his force that was making making the, it go off. Yeah. Okay.
1: Once she said a million times. This was all they needed. This was a confession to murder. Back in South Carolina, Chris Snyder had taken off. In his possession were several types of prescription pain pills and anti-anxiety medications, over 200 pills in all. Where he was living was surrounded by a thickly wooded area. Detective Harris flew to search for the fugitive. After seeing the area he requested bloodhounds to track down Snyder, but continued to get the runaround. One agency would tell him to call another to make the request, and then that agency would point their finger back at the first. He was there for almost four days, and Snyder had been missing for six, before he finally found the South Carolina Search and Rescue Dog Association, who was willing to help. On August 5, 2006, after only ten minutes of searching the wooded area near Snyder's girlfriend's home, the search dogs came across the badly decomposed remains of Chris Snyder. He had burrowed under a pile of brush and was partially hidden. Next to him lay several empty pill bottles and a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola. Christine Paolillo was charged with four counts of murder, and her bail was set at $500,000. She had no money to pay. She had blown through her trust account buying drugs, and had only $140,000 left of the original 400000 This was turned over to her attorneys for legal fees. Her stepfather purchased her condo for $80,000, and that also went to pay legal fees. Christine finally went to court in September of 2008, over five years after the murders. She was now 22 years old. Her defense was that she was forced to pull the trigger with Chris Snyder holding his hand over hers, But it was pointed out that of the 21 shots fired, 17 hit their target. It was not a random or haphazard shooting, so her account did not fit the forensic evidence. They pointed out that the shooting started as soon as the door was opened to them. The shell casings lying in the entryway were a testament to this. Both Marcus and Tiffany were shot with both guns, so both Christine and Chris fired on both of them, and they were the first to die. When the blown-up pictures of the crime scene were shown, members of the jury visibly blanched, and a friend of George Colorudis's, who was with him for moral support left the courtroom and collapsed in the hallway outside. Christine stared at the photos and neither gasped, cried, or showed any other visible reaction to seeing her closest girlfriend's bodies shot and beaten and covered in blood. Finally, the prosecutors explained how Justin Rott could not have known the details of the case unless he had been told by his wife, Christine Paolilla and she knew them because she had been there and participated from beginning to end. By the time of the trial and his testimony, Justin Rott had entered rehab once again and was now almost a year clean. Before he met Christine, he had never even heard of the murders in Clear Lake. He also testified that during all the time she had talked about the murders, she had never once mentioned feeling threatened or controlled by Chris Snyder. In October 2008, Christine was found guilty of four counts of murder and was sentenced to serve a mandatory life sentence. She would have to serve 40 years in prison before she was even eligible for parole. She escaped a death sentence because she was only a minor, 17 years old, at the time of the murders, and Texas did not allow for minors to be sentenced to death. So what made Christine, who had only two really good supportive and caring friends in her life, turn on them, especially Rachel, in such a violent and horrible way. We can cross out the idea that she was coerced by Chris. The evidence doesn't bear this out, and she herself never claimed this until she was trying to save her own skin. Second, considering the idea that this was simply a robbery gone wrong, it's possible that Chris and or Christine might have had the idea to go and rob the house, but they did it while people were home, and of course they could be identified. So it's unlikely that they would leave behind any witnesses, and they would have thought about that going in. As hard as it is to imagine, I think Christine wanted her friends, especially Rachel, dead. I think that everything that had happened before, her friendship with her, how she had taken her under her wing and helped her, paled in comparison to her jealousy and need to make sure that Chris was in her control. Maybe Chris made a comment or simply looked too long at her beautiful friend, when they had attended the party earlier that month. Maybe it burned that he thought another girl, her own friend, was prettier than her. She used to test him all the time, asking him if he thought another girl was prettier. Christine had a pathological fear of being alone. It started with the death of her father and then being sent away from her mother. She gravitated towards partners who were damaged and needy. She could find a way to make herself indispensable to them and in this way, they wouldn't leave her. Some theorized that by making Chris part of the murder plot, she would have an ultimate control over him. He couldn't leave her, or she would spill the beans about his part in the murder. When he was shipped off to Kentucky after their arrest, he was no longer under her control. This is why she fought with her parents to the point of violence to try and follow him. It didn't work, and instead, she was locked up in a psychiatric hospital and then forced into rehab. Chris's part in it is also puzzling. Perhaps he was high at the time. Perhaps he was goaded by Christine. Or perhaps he was acting out of his own violent tendencies. This answer died along with him. But I believe Christine was angry at her friends and sought revenge. The evidence of this is the overly brutal nature of the crime. The fact that both girls were shot deliberately in the groin area is telling. As is the number of times Rachel and Tiffany were shot. Tiffany was probably killed almost instantly, but several more shots were fired into various parts of her body, as if the person was trying to completely destroy her. The same is true of Rachel. Some also suggest that maybe Christine had always felt resentment towards the girls, believing that they didn't like her so much as pitied her, and this infuriated her. Finally, the beating Rachel sustained, during which, according to Christine herself, she looked up at her friend and asked, "'Why?' was so brutal that as soon as detectives viewed the crime scene, they thought they were looking at a very personal and angry attack. The killer, they thought, took out their rage on this girl. So what do you think could be the motivation for a young girl to commit such a horrible act on her two very best friends? It is chilling to think that Rachel's last words are the same that are still uttered today by the family, friends, and loved ones of Rachel Colorutis, Tiffany Rowell, Marcus Priscilla, and Adelbert Sanchez. Why, indeed. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Upon a Crime, and join our Facebook group. Just search for Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page. Thanks. Until next time, be good to one another.